The following is intended for mature audiences only. Discretion is advised. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of So What Do You Really Do? The podcast where I, your host, Dinner Dennis Manner, talks to artists and entertainers about their day jobs. And on this episode of the podcast, the voice does not get any better. <laughs> it's not even great right now. Oh, I think this is just what my voice is going to be. Like. It's not, it's not getting worse. For those who have been listening for a while, if you're a first time listener, the people who have been listening for a while know what I'm talking about for those first time viewers and first time listeners. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, what I'm referring to is my voice uh, as a voiceover artist, radio personality, I guess, former radio personality. Uh, actor, comedian, and now tour guide narrator for Boston Duck Tours. The, my voice is all I have, and I've never lost it before. I've never sounded this. Well, I've always sounded bad, but I've never sounded this weak voiced. Uh, but it's it's after you know twenty to twenty five tours a week or plus. I did almost thirty tours the other week, Memorial Day weekend, um, and now. I'm, I'm hitting my stride. This is how I sound all the time. now. Uh, there's no straining. It's not getting worse. It's, but the problem is it's not getting better. It's not getting back to where it's supposed to be. So that's kind of the worry. Uh, and this podcast, I recorded my friend, Brian Kiley, uh, comedian and writer, writer for Coney for 27 years and writer on the final season for Ellen DeGeneres' daytime talk show. Uh, he and I <laughs> recorded when my voice was pretty much at its worst. So. Apologies in advance for how I sound. Uh, apologies for the past, how I regularly sound, because it sounds like a truck full of screaming babies crashing into a nitroglycerin factory. It's it's cavernous and nasally, and it is my voice, and it uh, is sounding worse. <laughs> this is actually one of those other podcasts that I always talk about, where it's my pandemic friends, friends who I made during the pandemic through Zoom comedy. Uh, Brian Kiley, I opened for him Flappers Comedy uh, every Tuesday for a month. Uh, I hosted in, uh, for him, and we had a lineup of comedians that we performed together, and just repetitiously, him and I became friends over the internet. We performed together in uh, the North Carolina Comedy Festival back in 2021, which was fun. We got to hang out, have lunch, <laughs> and we'll talk about it in the thing. But yeah, it's when I was in LA, we didn't get to hang out you know, when he comes to Boston, we didn't get to hang out. Uh, but, you know, we, we enjoy each other's company. We're friends. And I'm really glad he came on the show because we got to talk to a writer for a TV show for somebody who was there for a long time. You know, and we also got to talk to somebody who was positive about the COVID-19 Zoom comedy world. You know, those are the things that you don't hear a lot. A lot of people talk negatively about Zoom comedy. Brian was hitting the, 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 the shows every night. Larry Kilmartin, former guest of the podcast, Larry Kilmartin, also very heavy into Zoom comedy. So is her co-host of her podcast, Jackie Cation, Maria Bamford, Ron Funches. There's so many people that did it uh, during the pandemic that got on their webcams and did comedy for people. But what you hear about is other people, how bad it was, how much I hated it, blah, blah, this, that, whatever. It's good and bad like every other show. You know, is it like performing live for a person? No. What do I always say to it? It's methadone for a performer's addiction you know and i enjoyed it i got to meet friends there was something good that came out of the pandemic you know whether i've successfully followed up with all those friendships or you know i don't want to say take advantage of because that sounds 
like I was manipulating things, but it's like, did I capitalize a lot on my relationships? Not necessarily, but the future is still yet to be written in my career in comedy. So we shall see how things go. Anyway, please enjoy my conversation with comedian and writer, Brian Kiley. It's a, look, look, before you tell me all about the flight, it's a good thing that you were delayed and I wasn't because I uh, caught a huge cold. Oh, okay. And I would have felt terrible if I gave someone else this cold. Yeah, no, I, I <laughs> That's why I didn't come by Saturday after the show because I was like so congested oh. and I lost my voice from oh, uh, doing nine Boston Duck Tours this weekend. Yeah, how were the Duck Tours? It is going to be an interesting job. I'm, I'm literally giving everything up with the exception of like I'm host just keeping one trivia gig and I'm still doing stand up when I can, but I've given up everything else. Like all my freelance work, all my editing work, I'm focusing everything, like all my financial basket, all my financial eggs are in this one doctor basket. And I have to hope that it pays off. <laughs> uh, I love the doctor. We wait. We went when my kids were little. Uh, my daughter was a baby when we did it. Well, it sounds like next time you come around, you're going to have to try and do it again. I would love it. We we did it in we did it in Boston. We did it in Philadelphia. We did it, I think, in Seattle. Is that right? It's there's lots of cities have those vehicles. Weirdly, it's not a chain. None of the other cities are connected to each other, as far as I know. Oh, really? Yeah, they're all independent. They all kind of like even at one time here in Boston, there was a second company doing duck tours that was not affiliated with the Boston duck tours. Crazy. Um, we had Captain Splash. Captain Splash. Do you have a stage name? I do. I am uh, a ukulele playing punk rocker named UK Lee. Nice. <laughs> Love it. That's so great. Uh, I picked the was- thing most closest to my own actual personality. No, good for you. Good for you. Uh, we we loved it though. It's so cool, uh, you know. And those are amazing boats, you know, slash trucks or whatever they are, you know. Yeah, basically, they're they're trucks that are boats and boats that are trucks. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, sorry. I mean, why did your flight? Is there like I know I I tried to sympathize with you with your uh with your flights from L.A. to Boston when I was like, oh, in February I had similar issues. My issues were because of snow. What was the <laughs> Why were your flights getting canceled? Why was it so difficult to get to Boston? They had some, they said some kind of mechanical thing. Who knows? You know, they could be full of shit. (laughs) And then our flight was delayed, you know, four hours going back. So we had two nightmare flights there and back. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, and and especially on top of like, you're only coming in for like two days. So you're getting in here, you're jet lagged, you're overtired. And then you have to perform. It's one, it's a different thing. It was like, oh, we're going for vacation. But you also have to be up and present and aware that's, of what's going on. That's true. So how was the uh, the Boston Comedy Festival? It was good. It was really good. And, and you know, my kids came, which was, I, I wasn't sure that they were going to be able to. So um, that made it great. It was, uh, they, they liked, they enjoyed the competition. You know, I kind of watched, I was kind of watched with half an ear because I was kind of had to prepare for my thing and all that stuff. But um. Yeah, it was really good. It was a very memorable event, you know. I mean, especially not just you know. I mean, you're performing in the most prestigious com- one of the most prestigious comedy festivals in the country. You know, you're invited to, but also they awarded you. Was it lifetime achievement? 
Is that what that award it, was? It was. And I actually had to give like, <laughs> I, I gave like a little speech, which, you know, it's not, I, that's what I was so nervous about because it's like, you know, I, I, I don't go around giving speeches. <laughs> so that was a whole different thing. You know? <laughs> yeah. That you can't give a one liner speech. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I, I just kind of, um, I wanted to explain to them who I was, <laughs> you know, and I just kind of documented <laughs> my career and, and told some anecdotes and things and, and, you know, tried to thank, uh, the people have helped me out and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's well, you had to talk earnestly for once in front of people. You had to open up yes. emotionally, whereas usually your one-liners are very, very devoid of emotion. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I actually got choked up on stage, which never happens except maybe when I was bombing in Providence. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad. Here's the, the the thing when it comes to lifetime achievement awards. Like you're, you know, you're, you're not an old man, but you're not young. Like your career is not over. It's like, here's the award for your lifetime. You're like, ah, you still got a couple of decades left under your belt, hopefully. Well, I, I was worried that I'm like, are they telling me it's time to go? Because, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm vaguely insulted by this award. <laughs> hey, everything you did was great up until now. <laughs> and we've had enough of you, Mister. <laughs> well, you've—I'm uh, uh, sure. Did you ever compete in the BCF before you left for LA? Back when they were doing it in the early years? No, I—I—I I, I never did. I um, the last contest I remember. Well, I did do the Johnny Carson Festival in 2014, which I didn't realize it was a contest until I got there. And then I did the I did the Johnny Walker thing in Boston years ago. What I remember at that we had to we had the auditions were in the afternoon. Everyone had two minutes, and there were a hundred and ten people or something. And if you passed with your two minutes, they picked eight people to go on to the finals. You know, to the to whatever to the finals that night and. One guy came in off the street, just somebody who wasn't a cop, and he told this long street joke. And after two minutes, they shut your microphone off. So he, in effect, came in and did a two-minute setup to a joke, and then they were like, thank you very much. <laughs> and never never got to the punchline. <laughs> you know, sometimes cutting them off before the end might actually be the most beneficial thing you can do to certain people in comedy. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, I just got to imagine that that's going from like, I can't imagine it yet. Cause I'm not at that point in my career, but like competing in a, in a, com, uh, in a, in a competition and then being awarded an award at the, at a competition. Like that's and like, I got to imagine that's a surrealistic feeling. Like I just got my first invite to a festival, not, Hey, submit, Hey, pay a submission fee. I just got an email uh, from a festival. New Orleans is like, hey, we want you to be a featured person in this festival. We'll get you everything set up and taken out. And I was like, you, you want me? <laughs> Actually, what? Yeah. You know? Oh, my God. <laughs> Not yeah. like we're going to give you a spot because you paid money. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, yeah, that's that's huge. And I feel like all these little steps you take are all, you know, 
And then sometimes people are like, oh, we still want you to pay money to come to our. <laughs> well, with the, uh, with, with coming here also, I, it's gotta be, you know, uh, I know you've been back once I'm, during the pandemic when we were hanging out on zoom shows, we had talked, you know, it was a while before you were able to come back home because of everything going on. But this is, is this your, this isn't the first time you've been back to Boston since the pandemic, right? I think there was one other time you were in town. Yes. I came in because, so my daughter went to BC and she graduated in 2020, but the pandemic, of course. So I came in, (laughs) I came in that March of, of 2020 to help her pack up and, and bring stuff back. And then uh, her graduation, the actual graduation, didn't take place until uh, October of um, 2021. <laughs> and I remember you telling me you were coming in town for the graduation uh, almost a year and a half afterwards. But it's so you haven't been back since uh, 2021 then. Right, right. Yeah, you know, when, she, you know, I... COVID's kind of messed everything up. I used to come back once a year. Then when my daughter was here, I'd try to come back twice a year, you know. But, um, you know, with COVID, I feel like, I, you know, we were all just kind of stuck in our where we were, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, like, my family's in Baltimore. It's 400 miles away. I live in Boston. Your family's in Boston. You live in L.A. It's entire across the country. I'm okay with not seeing my family. It doesn't bother me that, like, in fact, I wish there were still more pandemics. I'm like, sorry, Ma, can't come. Sorry, don't want to get you sick. You know, but you like your family. So I can understand how that was the struggle for you. Like, I want to come see my family. Well, I was, I was, which, I mean, there's good things that came out of it. Uh, in terms of what the the pandemic mean? Yeah, there was good things that came out of the pandemic. I mean, I mean, you wanted to see your family. So that's a bad thing. But I mean, you know, I, the amount of connections and friendships that I made through doing Zoom comedy during that that you know year and a half two year period, um, like when I went to LA in February, I was meeting people who I made very deep connection relationships with online, and they got to see them for the first time in person, and it didn't feel like I was meeting somebody new. It felt like I was meeting an old friend already. You know, right, right. So I feel like I don't know if anyone else came out with that kind of connection to people between like clubhouse zoom google hangouts and other these things i felt like i actually was seeing real friends i I don't know how you know your experience with it because you are somebody who did a ton of zoom comedy i did do a ton of zoom shows and i did meet a bunch of comics from around the country some of whom i've still never met in person um and one i see like i know like my writing group now we just meet on zoom we're like Wait, why? You know, it's so much easier to just do this and not have to drive an hour and drive an hour home and be able to try all that stuff. It's like, nope, go in the other room, have your meeting for for an hour, and then you're done. Ooh, love it, you know. <laughs> Some people initially shunned the whole Zoom thing. Um, like I said, you embraced it. What was it about Zoom comedy for you that made you like, oh, I'm going to jump on this and and, and use it? Well, I know some people didn't do do it at all. And to me, it was better than nothing. You know, I mean, one nice thing, it was nice to walk in the other room, do a set, and then you come back and it's like, all right, well, I, I was back 10 minutes later, <laughs> you know, um, my, I mean, Zoom shows were difficult where I'd come off and my wife would go, how was your show? I would say, I have no idea. <laughs> 
if you felt like that, but I was, I also, I have a terrible habit of when I'm on stage, I'll zero in on that person who's not laughing, you know? And with Zoom, I had to find the one person who was laughing, you know? Everyone's got their cameras off, <laughs> you know? And you're like, wait, is anyone here? And then you're like, oh, that guy's laughing. Okay, I'm going to focus on him. So, um, but I found it was better than nothing. I could still write stuff during the day and try it out that night. You know, it was like, and some, some days that was about as much human contact as I had. So I, I looked forward to it, you know? Yeah, I, it's, uh, there's point sometimes where I miss doing like Clubhouse and Zoom shows where I'm like in the middle of the afternoon, like, oh man, I wish I could just open an app and hang out with five to 10 people and share our little inside jokes. Yes. Or, yeah. You know, at night, instead of going out and, and traveling somewhere, I can just come down here, do a show and then go right, take my dog, go right for, for our walk and go right to bed and, and satiate that, that need for, for contact. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I don't find the person not laughing. I find I'm so attuned to looking for laughs just because I've become that way because a, I worked in radio. I worked in TV. I'm already accustomed to like talking to nobody in a room by myself. <laughs> well, it was also nice. You know, I could do a show here at 7 PM and people in Boston would, uh, friends of mine in Boston would be watching at 10 PM, you know? So that happened over zoom. And also what flappers would do a club in here in Burbank, they would have me, book the show in effect. They go, okay, do you want a headline? And I say, no, let me host. I'll book the show. And then I could have a friend of mine from New York and introduce her. And then I'd have a friend of mine from Boston introduce him. And then I'd have a friend from LA introduce her. So it was kind of nice to have that, you know, you, you're, you're having all your comedy friends all around the country doing a show and you're kind of like hosting a party. Yeah. I mean, there was a, a buddy of mine put me in charge of like, one Sunday a month show, even after the pandemic for KO comedy. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you did one of the kids. Yeah. Yeah. That was the best part is like all the people I don't get to see all the time. I can book them. And there was a point where I was like, Oh, I should probably put a Boston comedian. I was like, but I want to hang out with my New York friends and my LA friends and my Austin friends and my Chicago friends and my Boise, Idaho friends. Like <laughs> every time I thought about who to book on it, I did not book anyone who I knew personally day to day operations. I was like, I could see them. I want to see my other friends. Sure, sure. <laughs> I do think a funny thing over Zoom is sometimes I would finally meet the person and I'd done a dozen or so Zoom shows with them. And it's like, wait, you're really tall? I thought you were really short or whatever. You know what I mean? Like some, sometimes <laughs> they don't look the same in person. Or We all look shorter in these little boxes. Yeah, yeah. But I honestly did that to your friend Dana Eagle. Uh, when I came to LA, I was doing a show at Burbank. She was in the other room. I come out and I'm just sitting, talking, hanging out with her, talking. And it was like 45 minutes went by when she the light bulb went, went off. She was like, oh, wait, Dead Air Dennis. Yes, we've done Zoom shows together. I just thought you were just some new comedian who came to town. <laughs> she was like, I didn't recognize you without all your equipment and sure. backdrops sure. and everything behind you. That was funny. Like, I didn't even introduce her. I was just like, hey, Dana, what's up? And she's like, hey, what's up? And we're talking, talking. It's like, I've been wondering this whole time who you were. It's driving <laughs> me crazy. <laughs> that sounds like her. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you adapted to Zoom better because 
when you were uh, writing, I think was were you when the pandemic hit? You were still writing for Conan, right? I was, yeah. So you already had moved. Did Conan's writing room move to a Zoom uh, setup during the pandemic as well? Is that why you think you may have been adapted it because you were already doing it during the day for work? Yeah, that's true. That's true, and I do think. I do think my style lent itself to Zoom in that you can do a quick joke. I think it's harder to do a long story over Zoom and not be interrupted. Oh, boy, as a person who tells long stories, boy, do I know that. Right? Because <laughs> I, I found my, my longer jokes even had more trouble than than just a quick joke, you know? Uh, it's so easy to get interrupted over Zoom. I was doing a show with my, Wayne, my friend Wayne Fetterman, and... Halfway through his act, you know, who's ever guest of the podcast? Yes. Oh, good. Who's ever uh, interrupting my? Uh, so who's ever? Um, who's ever the loudest on Zoom gets the mic, so to speak. You know. So he got interrupted. This old woman. He's doing a set, and mid punchline, this old woman starts saying, "I'm watching the comedy show. I'm watching the comedy show." <laughs> and we never heard his punchline. And we were dying. Oh my god! <laughs> there was a lot of unexpected uh, comical moments. Yes, you know, it's somebody coming in the room screaming and yelling, or people's kids like, "Dad, why are you making so much noise?" <laughs> yes, yes. There's a lot of that. <laughs> when when everything started during the pandemic for you as a writer, uh, switching over to the to the, what did a writer's room on Zoom look like uh, in the case of? A late night TV show because I've talked to a couple other writers. Some of them basically did like hourly check ins. Some other people kind of did like eight hours in a room together, just silently contemplating and oh just my god, tapping on their pens. Oh my just god, like I can't imagine that. No, we had one or two meetings a day. Also, what happened was, you know, Lori Kilmartin and I would continue to write monologue jokes for him, and he would read them. You know, he's doing the show with us on his phone at home. Uh, um, and so he would read these jokes off note cards. And then after a while, he um, he's like, doing these jokes to no one, uh, I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> so he stopped doing that after a while. Uh, what they would do was, if you got a, a sketch approved, uh, and you could only do you couldn't really do sketches with multiple people in it unless it was like a married couple that were just like in lockdown together or something like that. But I wrote a sketch where it was about a guy who he had a, his business was, he had a uh, package stealing business from people's porches. <laughs> and he was so overwhelmed that he had to, he was hired, he was looking to hire people to join his his porch packaging stealing business. So the bit was just him talking to camera. So it was one of the actors we use, um, uh, Matt McCarthy, who he just did it on his own. You know, we sent him the script and he just, he just did it on his, at his house alone um, on his own phone or whatever, you know? So we had to kind of work around things like that. Yeah. I can't imagine having like, I did a couple of like single person sketch ideas. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic to get like re-familiar with like Premiere uh, mm -hmm. editing, like to jump back. Like I haven't used Premiere. I haven't done video editing since 9-11. Yeah. 
Um, and so it's like, oh, let me learn, relearn while I have this time. So I had to create sketches. And there's so, it was so hard creating one man sketch. There's oh one sketch God. literally that I had written forever that is mostly one person. And then I literally had to play my other self and go, nobody's going to get this. I like, I didn't change enough clothes to realize that I'm looking at myself as a different person. They're like, why is he now in the chair? <laughs> so funny. So you switched the, to sketch writing. Uh, when the announcement of uh, Conan, ha- that Conan show was coming to an end. What was your feelings? I know we kind of talked about it during the pandemic, but yeah, yeah, no, I, you know, I was, I mean, it's that thing of, I wish it kept going, but I was also grateful, you know, I was there 27 years, so I really can't complain too much, you know? Um, yeah, you've been with them since almost the beginning, right? I started uh, six months in to the first season. So, um, that was a long run and, um, you know, I still enjoyed it. I, I, if it kept going, I would have kept going with them, you know. And then I was able to jump on the last season of Alan, which was fun. Um, but, yeah. Which, know, by the way, at that point, you get out of one show that's canceling. You move to another show, they're canceling that. It's like, at what point do you feel like, is it me? Oh, definitely. I, I, I was thinking of, of trying to join shows that I hate just to get them off the air. <laughs> That's a that's a perfect plan. <laughs> I feel like everything I get a part of, I somehow sabotage. Maybe that's what I'll start doing is joining my enemies. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, you know, we had a nice long run. It's, it's, you always want to keep going as long as you can, you know? Well, it's good that you never got burned out on it. Because uh, some people can, you know, they, they want to change up. They want different or they get yeah. monotonous. Um, it's nice to hear that you did something for literally almost three decades and we're still a fan of it. Yes. I mean, I, I certainly would have liked to written for, you know, jump to a sitcom or something, but you know, with having kids and stuff, you're afraid that what if the show gets canceled and that's happened to some writers They leave to a sitcom and the sitcom get canceled and they're out of work. So I, I, I as much as I would have liked the variety, I, I did, um, I did like being able to put my kids through college and all that kind of thing. And, you know, I got to work with really funny people every day and laugh my ass off every day. So I really, I, I loved it. I can't, you know, I wish, you know, I, I want more of it. Let's, let's, <laughs> I want to get in another writer's room. Well, it's, so you were part of two amazingly, you know, long and well-known uh, talk shows that you're writing monologue jokes for. Both of them are, are, are done with and over. What's the plan now? Like, it, you know, is, is it, are you trying to find another show to write on? Are you trying to change gears? Are you even thinking about going to back to touring lifestyle? Well, it's funny. I have been, I have been doing a lot of stand up and I've been touring. The shows are fun. The, the, the flying and the long drives and all that stuff, the wear and tear is hard. <laughs> Especially after this last weekend. Yeah. It was, I know, I really, it was a nightmare getting in and out of Boston. But um, I'd love to get on a show. You know, I've been writing pilots and things, so I'd love to sell a show or create a show. Um, and, you know, if an existing show wanted to have me in the room to help punch up jokes or whatever, sounds good to me. I'd love that, too, you know. 
Well, there's enough, uh, you know, former Boston people who've come through the Simpsons. They were always, uh, you know, like that's how uh, Dana Gould got his job, just being a comedian. And they brought him in for punch up. Just talk to enough Boston guys. Like somebody will get you in that room. Enough Harvard guys. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's spread that rumor around. <laughs> By the way, I feel like the old aunt is like, you know what you see a dude to do your comedy thing. You should go on that Saturday night live. Why don't you just go on Saturday night live? <laughs> I know my sister's always recommending shows I should write on. It's like, yeah, I'd be happy to. It's not, I'm not saying no. <laughs> yeah, it's not like I'm the one making the decisions. <laughs> well, do you, do you think writing, do you think writing uh, for a talk show prepared you, f- would prepare you for writing and show running? Or do you think that's a skill that you developed before? Well, let's, you know what, before you answer that question, Let's go back and talk about uh, what got you into comedy because you do a ton of writing prior to being a comedian. Were you a f- big into writing? Were you a big writer growing up? Um, I, it's funny. I, <laughs> when I was in high school, uh, I wrote sports for our, I covered our high school hockey team and baseball team. So I had like a little every week, I had a little column uh, talking about the games that week. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I, so I, in effect, I started getting paid to write when I was 15, um, writing sports for those three years. And I did want, I, as a kid, I'd watch the Dick Van Dyke show and I was like, I'd like to be a comedy writer when I grew up. So I used to write jokes and I, would save them for when I needed them. And um, I didn't know how to go about it. <laughs> I didn't know how people got those jobs. Or I didn't know how people were, you know, because there really weren't comedy clubs when I, when I was a kid that I knew of, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I always, I mean, I would say since I was about 12, I wanted to be uh, in comedy as a, as a comedian or a comedy writer or whatever. Yeah. That's interesting because like using Dick and Dyke is a great example of a very few small thing, like a real f- actual look into how a TV show gets written because that's the entire show takes place in a writer's room. Prior to that, what did you have? Like, I don't even think prior to that, after that, the only other thing that really gave you an inside look of TV was what, um, uh, that with uh, Olivier, um, Lawrence Olivier did a, a sketch show, a movie about a sketch show, a show within a show. Um, what is it? It was just in my brain. It just went right out of it as I was preparing to introduce it. Show of shows, the movie Show of Shows. Yeah, there was that was the only other look to like behind the scenes, and then. Then comes along 30 Rock, which is the absurdest version of a show within a show, you know? And so nobody really, you never really saw how the inner workings of TV go. So it's interesting that you watched the Dick Van Dyke show and it was like, because I remember watching reruns of the Dick Van Dyke show. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Look at one of them type and one of them talk. That's as far as I got in my brain about it. And I say, I still like, that's a show that still holds up for me when I watch reruns, you know? Well, this is a terrible story. I shouldn't tell the story, but (laughs) 
I actually bummed out Dick Van Dyke. Because we had a joke. He was on a show called Diagnosis Murder. Mm-hmm. And CBS canceled the show. So we had a joke about CBS decided to cancel the show when they realized all their viewers died four years ago. <laughs> I wrote that joke and Conan did it. And then it was in Entertainment Weekly. And apparently Dick Van Dyke saw it and he bummed out. And Conan had to send him an apology letter. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm bumming out my hero here, you know? I mean, it's one thing to have to apologize for a joke that you wrote. Apologize for a joke from somebody else, though. You're like, just sitting in your room like, do I also have to send the apology? Oh, oh. And then, I, you know, he ended up doing the show. He couldn't have been nicer. I got to meet him. I didn't reveal that I wrote that joke or anything. Um, but it was what it was it was such a treat to meet that guy after all he did for me you know well at least that's a positive story of meeting your heroes even though if you uh made them sad yes yes you can make your heroes sad sometimes so if you knew since a teenager you wanted to grow up to be a comedian what was your path from childhood to becoming an actual comedian did you put anything into effect that you like here at Emerson that if a 12 year old now wants to become a comedian they can literally set their life to go to Emerson college, graduate with a degree in comedy. And then you have to figure everything out from there. (laughs) That piece of paper doesn't get you a job at a comedy club, but it gets you on the path. It's so true. I, it was, I didn't know how to go about it. You know, I, I just knew I wanted to do this thing, but when I was a sophomore in college, I saw, I saw my first live comedy show and the headliner was Barry Crimmins, uh, Bearcat who I thought was great, and I met him after the show, and we ended up meeting for coffee, and I brought some jokes that he critiqued, and he let me come to the Ding Ho for free whenever I wanted, which I went all the time. Uh, and then I took a summer school class at Emerson uh, taught by Dennis Leary. Oh, wow. So what years, what, what, year were you in, what years were you in college? When was this happening? Uh, in the early 80s. Okay. So, so basically the tail end of the, the 70, 70, late 70s, early 80s comedy boom. Yeah, so I started early early 80s. I was at, I was at Boston College. And uh, taking that class, then, I, then they recommend that I keep going. So I, went, I would go to the Ding Ho and I'd go to the Comic Connection. And I started getting little $20 gigs, $30 gigs, whatever, $50 gigs if I was lucky when I was in college. And then, um, and then I started doing it full time when I graduated. What did you graduate? What did you end up going to college for? Uh, I was an English major. <laughs> okay, I mean that's 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 kind of in the path of that. Like that that's you know teach it teaches you the discipline of writing. The the it teaches you the imagery of wording. Yep. Yeah. So you were already you you had a plan. You had a plan. You you were you were, you're downplaying yourself and like oh, I don't know how to get there. What you did is you went to the school to learn about words to be a guy that used words to make money. See, you you don't you always sell yourself short, Brian. I <laughs> I had a vague plan. I didn't know. I had a very cloudy plan that I, <laughs> I I knew somehow I was I was determined to get there. I just didn't know how really, but you know, it, I'm glad that it worked out. Well, we look back now here in Boston at the Ding Ho, which is, you know, like, uh, it's, 
mean, Barry Crimmins has that documentary about him growing up, uh, and and his. If you if you want a sad story, watch Barry Crimmins' documentary. But uh, it, the Dingho's an institute to us here. Not a lot of people know about it outside of here. My friend Fran Solomita made a movie called When Stand Up Stood Out that was about the time period back in Boston. Yeah, there's that one as well. So it's like, did you realize at the time when you were going to the Dingho that it was as pivotal as as we remember it as is now? Like, when when you're in that time period going to the Dingho, was there a moment where you're like, this is like, th- this is it. This is the comedy club. I, I, I did think it was a very special place. Like I, I, I felt like I had stumbled on to this, you know, uh, you know, I, I couldn't believe that I was there part of it and, and that I knew those guys. And, and, um, yes, there, there was a, there was a romantic quality to it. I mean, believe me, you know, there were bad shows there sometimes, <laughs> and, you know, whatever, but it, the whole thing was so exciting. You know, um, and you know, I was I was in awe of those headliners there, Stephen Wright and and you know the, all, all, Mike Donovan and Mike all those guys. I, I you know Kenny Rogers and Tingle and all all those guys. So yeah, I I was so excited to uh, be part of that scene. You know? <laughs> what made you? Decided to leave Boston. Well, I, it's funny. I kind of went kicking and screaming because even when I started at Conan, you know, my wife is a VP of a company. So, you know, we didn't want to pick up and move. And also, I only had 13-week contracts. So it was kind of like, well, we don't know how long this is going to go. Um, so I, they would let me write from home one or two days a week. You, you were still living in Boston when you started writing monologue jokes for Conan? I was. Oh, I never knew that. Yes, and then I, I, I probably stayed a little too long, but um, and then we then we I think I think once my wife left her job, it was kind of like okay, let's <laughs> what are we doing here? So we moved to New York, and then I was in New York for a bunch of years, and then um, and then I came out with Conan when the show moved to L.A. Well, how did you get the monologue writing joke job from while living in Boston? I just assumed you were in New York, that you had already moved to New York and got no, the no, job. No. Well, what happened was Conan, uh, there's a couple of Boston comics that got hired there. Uh, my friend Tom Agna and Chuck Sklar, and they were writing his monologue and, and somebody got fired. And at the time, I was writing a lot of topical jokes for my act when I would just go out in clubs. I would, you know, if I did 45 minutes, I would do 25 minutes of topical jokes and then 20 minutes of you know, so when I got my job, I actually lost 25 minutes of material right away. Um, uh, so I was in the habit of, in those days, getting the newspaper, sitting down and writing jokes for the newspaper every day. Um, so uh, when they asked me to submit a packet, a bunch of those jokes I'd been doing in my act, you know, and the thing with topical jokes, you know, you have to... We plan. You can't. You know. You can't be up there talking about the Eisenhower administration or whatever. You know. You've got to. You've got to keep keep replenishing it and, and keep it current. But I, I some of those jokes I was doing in my act, and then I wrote some new ones and uh, sent the packet in, and they um, 
So the writer's packet for me was just, it was just a monologue packet. So it was a packet of about 50 jokes. And they called me and said, okay, you start tomorrow. Well, this is uh, just to point out timing. Uh, like to do that now is easy. You put it together. If you have the packet ready, you have it within minutes. In 1995, 1996, when Conan started, you literally had to either pack it into a manila envelope and mail it to them. Or were you faxing it to them? I mean, that was the height of technology, fax machines. <laughs> I, I know. And I, I think I remember having to go to like the local copy store and have them, hey, can you fax this to, to NBC? You know? Um, yeah, it's kind of it's nutty to think about. Was that when you were working from, from home writing for Conan? Is that, did you have to fax the jokes to him or was there a phone call or how did that process work? Yes. I mean, I would, I would fax stuff in and then sometimes we would have, I'd be on the phone with the other writers and we'd be spitballing. And sometimes, you know, the funny thing about comedy is sometimes you say something in the room to make the room laugh and they go, that's good. Let's put that in. That, that happened to me and Ellen. Do, do, do you do Wordle? I know what it is, but I don't do it now. I'm not that smart. So when Wordle started, I, 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 was, I we were at Ellen and Wordle started, and I said, writing for that's going to be the easiest job in the world. You know, you show up at noon. How about Dwell? Dwell is good. Okay. I'll see you guys tomorrow. You know? <laughs> um, and I was just kidding around the group. And they go, that's good. And then they put it and she did that in the monologue the next day. I was like, okay, I was just, I wasn't even, I didn't even realize I was working. I just thought I was kidding, joking around in the room. (laughs) Well, sometimes at Conan, you're, you know, you said a room to, you said a joke to make the room laugh and then go, and they put it on. And I'm like, I was just kidding. I wasn't, you know, I didn't think that was appropriate for the show or whatever. (laughs) So that, that stuff happens all the time. Is there one that never worked out where you're like, everyone in the room laughed at it, and then when it went into the air, it just went whoosh, 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 down the drain in the audience? Is there one that you can remember? Yes. I remember one time, it was just a bad crowd, or the jokes were bad, or the combination of both, whatever, but the monologue did not go well. Mm-hmm. So the next day, Conan comes in my office, he's like, how do you feel? When you send me out there with that, <laughs> yeah. and what I told him was, if you've ever seen the, you know, the Hitchcock movie, Rear Window? Very well, very much, yes. Yeah. So there's a scene where, you know, Jimmy Stewart's got two broken legs, and he thinks his neighbor, Raymond Burr, has murdered his wife. So he sends his girlfriend, Grace Kelly, in to investigate when Raymond Burr is out of the apartment. And Raymond Burr comes home early and catches her and starts manhandling her. I said, I feel like Jimmy Stewart watching this going, oh, no. And he's Grace Kelly in the audience is Raymond Burr. <laughs> I, I mean, I got to imagine purchasing a fax machine was like, I'm buying this thing for work was a big, huge kind of deal. Like, I, I'm, I'm, you know, like, I have a studio here. I built this studio out of spare parts that I stole from my job in radio. Then when I can actually afford like what I was doing it enough and I could afford to buy an actual microphone that wasn't stolen. I was like that, like when I left radio and went, became a freelance podcast person, I was like, this is my job area. This is like, I have a room to do my work in is in, in the nineties. Was that the same feeling? It was like, got to go to Staples and buy a fax machine. 
with all these bills, with all these checks from Conan. Yes, and I do remember when my son was a year old, sometimes we'd get a, you know, the phone would ring and we'd go answer the phone. But if we got a fax, you'd just kind of let the fax come in and you wouldn't go to the other room. And he would come, he would be standing there like, blah, 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 you know, not, not speaking yet, but like, the thing is ringing. <laughs> like, why aren't you going to get it? And he was always bewildered as a baby of like, what? Why, why does sometimes he answer the phone and sometimes he don't? You know? <laughs> well, I remember because uh, working radio, doing morning radio, we were getting prep service by fax. So every morning, right at like 4 a.m., fax machine would go off and you would get a stack of paperwork this big coming from prep services. And you just take them and sort through them. And then you'd sort through them. And every once in a while, you'd find like, or in the middle of like 2 a.m. or 2, 3 p.m., you would get a fax for no reason. You'd pull out and it's spam. It's like a sale ad that they just faxed to you. Were, were you getting spam faxes? Like I got a fax at work one day. It's like, make your penis bigger. I'm like, I'm going to throw this away. Yeah. I, when I would get notes and send that they were just from my wife. They weren't spam. <laughs> <laughs> they were just saying, you know, make your penis bigger, you know, <laughs> All right, so you eventually moved to New York and then eventually to L.A. That's, I, Rab, you say, you say kicking and screaming. That was a conversation, you know, that you and your wife had to have. Like, do we continue to do this? Do we follow through on this? How did that conversation between you and your wife go? Well, you know, once once her job ended and then it was kind of like, you know, you know, we certainly... And I, you know, when I had a good job and we did, you know, you had to, um, you know, we wanted to keep, keep working and, 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 um, you know, then we had kids to take care of and, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think, um, we did think, you know, when I started Conan, I, I, the show was a little bit shaky in the beginning and. Yeah, I mean, it's it's that's got to be a nerve wracking feeling where you're doing a thing and then you're seeing every day in the public eye where they're like, eh, it's not working out for this big old tall redhead guy. You're like, yeah. uh, if it don't work out for him, it doesn't work out for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's always that 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 thing like there's so many jobs writing, but I guess when it comes to like crew work, like I've done crew stuff, sound guy, right? Obviously, I'm going to do crew work. Uh, on, on small productions and stuff like that. I feel like the feeling amongst crew is there's always another job out there. But when you're right. a performer or when you're in the, the performance side of it, when you're on the entertainment side, when you're directly related to like writing, directing, starring, being in those things, I guess there's I always thought that because there's, they're not meritocracy, meritocracy when, when you're a performer, it's not, based on your merit, it's based on, do you fit this role? Yes, there's so many factors, and certainly it helps, but uh, you know, and I know people who they waited their whole life to get their own sitcom, and they get their sitcom, and then it's cancelled after one or two episodes, and they're devastated, you know? So... Oh, I didn't know you were friends with John Mulaney. (laughs) Well, he's one of them, you know? It's so true with so many of them, Luckily, he's doing okay. No, I, don't worry about him. But, 
Yeah, I mean, that's a real <laughs> Or even getting a writing job in a sitcom which you finally made it, and then the show gets canceled after a couple episodes and you're back out in the street. So I, I was certainly very lucky to be on such a long-running show. Well, it, you know? it shows that, you know, it shows your talent that you were a part of it for that long, that you're able to uh, sh- prove that you're able, because you went from one amazingly popular show to another amazingly popular show. I mean, is there other outside of Oprah? Is there a bigger talk show than, than Ellen at the time? You know, I said Oprah packet and <laughs> <laughs> you know, that whole, you know, and you get a car and you get a car. I think something very similar. Um, <laughs> I, I pitched and you get a fax machine and you get a fax machine. Um. <laughs> well, you, you and uh, you've already written a pilot that's gone around uh, the festival circuit, right? Didn't you and Mary Gallagher put a, do a pilot together, my therapist? We did. It was a be my therapist. So we, we shot five episodes of a web series um, and it got us into Montreal and we got uh, meetings from it and, and that kind of thing. And so what happens in these things, that, you know, there are people that I've met from that who uh, they ended up passing on that idea, but they want, you know, every time I have a new thing, they're happy to take a look. So that kind of building those relationships, you hope that uh, something ultimately comes from it, you know? And it was really fun to be in Montreal and to, to you know, put our web series, in, you know, in front of a crowd and that kind of thing. Was it what, was it easy working alongside just somebody else writing story and structure and stuff like that? I'm sure monologue jokes is just pitch joke, pitch joke, pitch joke. It's a room full of people joking around. I'm sure that's an easy concept. Uh, that's an easy room to be in. But when it's you and one other person sitting around like, here's this character, here's their arc, here's the story, this is how... Did you and Mary get along? Was there a little bit of friction between the two of you while working? Absolutely. And also, she's such a, a she's such a terrific actress. So shooting with her, I kind of let her, it's like, I just try not to get in the way, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and her, you know, uh, yes, writing together was great. And, and um you know, I, I, I do think you have to have the right chemistry with someone, and luckily we had that and, and uh, would make each other laugh, and, and we felt like we, um, we had similar sensibilities, which helps, you know, because there are people that, that I think are funny, but their sensibilities are too different for me or something, you know? Um, so, yeah, that was a, that was a, 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 a dream gig. Yeah, I I found I don't work well with others. <laughs> like I can do a collaborate. I can do like a group collaboration, like where we're talking about like joke structure in like a writing room. But the few times I've tried to get to get together with people and work on like let's write a script together, and I'm like, I'm okay without doing this with the, without you. Let's take our let's let's write separately, and then we'll we'll have our own projects. Well, there is. I mean, it depends on the person. Uh, you know, there are people who. Um, they always say they're going to get together and then they never do or, you know, it's just people that, um, 
you know, you need someone with a good work, work ethic. You also need somebody who, you know, you don't want to work with that person that they only like their ideas. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you want to be with that person where um, that you like each other I, I, ideas and there's not that sort of ego of it's got to be my thing or whatever you, that you that you can, um, you know, that you can agree on and, and um and work together. It's not that's it, it, that's true. Take it's not an easy relationship, you know. But when it works, you're. I'm so appreciative, you know. Do you think you became a better collaborator because you had to work in a room with people so much, or do you think you just naturally that way? Yes. No. I think that definitely helped. And one thing I had to learn at Conan was you couldn't hold on to the jokes that you loved. That if if you loved a joke and they couldn't do it for whatever reason. You just had to let it go. You and I think with your with your act, the jokes are so near to your heart. But writing for a TV show or whatever, uh, you know, they, they they use that expression. You have to kill your darlings. And when you're writing scripts, sometimes you have to take out a line that you love. It doesn't quite fit, or whatever the reason is. So it, or it's or it's really doesn't help the story move move the story forward or whatever. So. Um, uh, working at Conan, we were generating so much stuff, and 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 not everything could make it to air, and some things that you loved didn't make it to air. So you had to kind of learn to let go and not, you know, um, not hold on too tight to those things. You know, what's the what's one joke that you kept trying to give them that you had to kill and nobody would ever accept? What's the one that you're like, I always wish this joke would have gotten through. There was a, well, there was a sketch idea. You know how we there was always like The Office was originally a British show, and you know Sanford and Son was originally a British show, and All in the Family was originally a British. So I pitched this idea that Conan was originally a British show, and so basically we had to so and Conan loved the idea. The idea of he was going to play the British version of him doing Conan um, and with a British accent and just, you know, all the silliness that we were going to add to the show. And it kept getting put off and then we just kind of ran out of time and we never got to do it. And that was one that made me sad that, especially since I knew Conan loved the idea. And, and I think he would have been really funny doing a British version of himself, you know? <laughs> there was also like, wasn't there a Bob Odenkirk sketch where he likes the predecessor to Conan or he did a version of Conan with Bob Odenkirk? Uh, maybe the, the, the amount of stuff I could, it, you know, Andy talked about this too, when they would show, they would show like a, 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 a like a retrospective and they would show things. And Andy would say, you know, I remember about a third of those things, <laughs> you know, there, there are so many things where, <laughs> You know, he's in a costume, he's whatever, no recollection of that bit at all, because there were just so many things. Um, and people would say things to me about monologue jokes that I wrote and things, and I'm like, I don't remember that. And then I look it up and I think, oh, sure enough. You know, I watched a Dr. Katz that I did recently, and there were jokes coming out of my mouth that I had never heard before in my life. And obviously I spoke them and I said them, but I wasn't even remotely familiar. Yeah. Well, that's what I loved about Dr. Katz growing up as a kid is I get to see my favorite comedians do jokes and then see visual representations of it. Like, oh, watching yeah. Colomini 
you know, scream about the, the fire, the barbecue. I know how to handle the fires. Absolutely. And that, and that was fun. Like I never, it never occurred to me to picture myself as a cartoon. So to get, and well, I got that cartoon cell and, and it was framed in our den. And my little, my son was nine months old and every day he would point at that picture and laugh. And I don't know what, there's something inherently funny about cartoons, I guess, but his little nine-year-old baby brain would look at it and just crack up. I don't know if he knew that it was me. I, 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 it was so fascinating to me. When yeah. running for a network TV show, I mean, things are different now. Like, you can get away with so much on so many other networks, you know, and, and you're pretty much a clean-cut median. So I don't think you ever had problems with standards and practices, but was there ever somebody on the show that can, that you worked with who consistently just kept getting shut down because like too dirty, too bad, can't do it, too dark. Is there anyone that had problems with standards and practices? Oh, yes, yes. Well, that was for me the hard, when I shifted to Ellen, so after doing 27 years on late night to go to a daytime, I pitched things in the Ellen writer's room and they'd go, ha, 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 we can't do that. And I was like, what? That's, that's so <laughs> Um. And there was this one thing, there was a story about there was some beach in Spain that they were saying was being ruined because so many people going to this beach to have sex that it was ruining the beach with this stream with condoms, it's, you know, all this stuff. So I pitched this idea of a reporter reporting from that beach and you just hear the loud sounds of sex just wafting into the, into the frame. And they were like, yeah, we can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I have the same problem with Boston Duck Doors. Like, I'm just naturally subversive. So I shy away from, like, the jokes that everyone else in my group is doing or the other tour guys are doing. I'm trying to find creative, original jokes that are also in my very dark tone and yes, just keep yes. getting shut down by the trainers who are like, no, Dennis, you cannot... Please stop referring to Paul Revere as the Elon Musk of the revolution. Or, uh, that's so funny. Please don't call the departed starring Leonardo DiCaprio and locally known racist Mark Wahlberg. Stop saying those things. <laughs> like I have a whole boss. Uh, like I've written almost an entire, at least a 45 minute tour of Boston. That is a roast of Boston history tour that should be its own tour it's like come on you know the yeah there should be a, a, a like a midnight dark tour that people know what they're in for you know? like all the people who roll their eyes when you hear somebody mention tom brady that tour is for you the roads to boston is for you <laughs> like sure. i talked about there's a, a robert gronkowski donated 1.2 million dollars to build a playground and my joke for it was hey you can learn the jump you can learn to climb. You can learn to be just like Robert Gronkowski and abandon Boston just like he did. And they're like, no, no, no. Put a stop to that. No, <laughs> do not abandon us. <laughs> <laughs> right now, what is uh, like with the strike going on? Uh, I mean, I don't know if you're tech. I think what's your opinion on the strike? Obviously, everyone is for the side of more money, but. Did I? Did we schedule a time today that took it away from your time pick on, on the picket line, 
I'm sorry, I didn't mean to not help you represent. Yes, I, I went yesterday and I had friends say, okay, we want to meet tomorrow at 11. And I'm like, I, I have to do a podcast. I can't, uh, I can't join you. So, uh, yes, you're, uh, you got me, you lured me away from the picket line. Um, and today actually would be a good day because it's overcast. It's, you know, it's going to be 95 degrees here soon. It's going to be a bummer. Uh, yeah, it is. But so what's, what's the front lines of, of the strike looking like from somebody who literally your livelihood comes from writing? Yes, yes. And, you know, I've been through this before. We did it you know, in 2007 and the beginning of 2008. We were out of work for three and a half months. So, um, and that was, you know, we were in New York. And it was freezing, you know, uh, December and January, as you can imagine. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not on a show at the moment, so that is good in that sense. I, the problem is the things that I'm writing, and you know, I can't pitch a show now, you know, until the strike ends. So, um, you know, there's no, um, there's nothing, you know, for the foreseeable future that I can do television wise. I, I, you know, I can go out and do stand up, and that's what I've been doing, but. Um, yeah, it's the two sides seem very far apart, and uh, it's also the kind of thing of you know you you like to think that you're in control of your life, but when you get into television, you realize there are much bigger forces at work that you're just you know um, you're not in charge of your life, you know. So. Um, I, I hope it gets resolved soon. I'm not. I'm not optimistic, though. Uh, this could be a long one. Well, I think the worst thing that came out of the 2007 strike was reality TV. Say what you want about it. I mean, most of it to me is garbage. You know, and it's it's not even reality. It's manufactured reality. Yes, and it's funny because my daughter loves it, and I, I I can't be in the room. She's watching Vanderpump Rules or something, and I'm like. I can't be in the room for this. It just makes me nauseous. But uh, I know some people love it. But yeah, I think I there's so many good, well-written, scripted shows. That's what I love. You know, I love watching Succession and, and Barry and uh, Better Call Saul or whatever. There's so many good things. Oh, so good. So, so good. good. Yes. Um, that to have He's people. Amazing. Yeah, Bill Hader does not like. It's unfair how much talent Bill Hader has. It's unfair. Share it with everyone else, Bill Hader. <laughs> I know. And then you have these shows where you have these two people screaming at each other over whatever. And it's like, ugh. and that's what I worry about with this strike is is we're gonna get more of that. Like, like the 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 problem is people don't care how the shows are made or what goes into them. They just want to watch them. Well, that I mean, the idea of of your. Of robots or whatever writing your writing dialogue, writing shit, song, you know, writing music, writing, uh, you know, everything is terrifying. You know, well, the late nineties, early two thousands reminded me of when people were screaming for digital music and the music industry didn't give it to them. So what did they do? They went to Napster. They went to LimeWire. If you had made, if the music industry had made music digitally accessible to people, they would never have pirated it, you know, and similar in this way where people want the shows and they want the content. If you just give them a show, they're going to watch it. it. Hopefully we can give them something good and we can put people to work and create a good product. 
but people are going to just watch things regardless, probably likely. And then what, what, what's going to come of it? You know, the people who want quality, you know, then that's what they're going to, they're going to put out. Like, I think this is disappointing. I would hope Disney would have been the, the company that was going to be the ones that with all of the content they have, they're usually from what I can always tell is pretty good about acquiring a thing and then letting people make that thing and not being too much involved with it. They just hire Kevin Feige, go make movies. They hired John Favreau, go make star Wars TV shows. Dave Filoni, go make star Wars TV shows. And they don't interfere. They just let those guys make good quality things. But they came out with a whole ABC lineup that is just reruns and reality shows and game shows. And it's like, Disney, you could have been the one that put an end to this. You can be like, Hey, let's let's I was hoping they would be the ones that build the bridge because a lot of this is really because of the streamers. It's the streamers who've been getting away, as far as I know. Please, you're involved with all this more than I am, but it seems like the streamers are the ones who have all this control and power right now, and they're high on their own petards, uh, or their own hubris where they're like, Hey, we don't want to pay writers. Like I've heard so many people talk about going from network to streamer streamer and back and forth, and it's like Networks are, were, were paying and then streamers weren't. And then now net, networks are finding out, oh, streamers are, are underpaying. Now we're going to underpay. And it's like, this technology should be a betterment for all of mankind when it comes yes. to entertainment. And it just seems like their greed is getting in the way. And, you know, being a television writer is a great job. I think people don't realize how long your hours are. And, you know, <laughs> It's it's um, if you're if you're on a, sh- a network show, you, you can't work another job, <laughs> you know, and because you're just in the writers room all the time, you know. So um, I, I think they're really being ridiculous. With they're 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 making a ton of money. They're you know, especially if you've got uh, you know. It's so hard to get one of those jobs and to, to just um, people shouldn't be making, you know, any, if with any job, people shouldn't be making less than they were 20 years ago. Great point. You know? Adam Conifer was saying and what or was it Adam Conifer or one of the writers was saying I heard in another podcast talking about a 20 year experienced writers making the same amount of money as somebody who's doing writing for their very first year. And there's a huge disparity between that. And that's on that's in all rights and rights is unjust yes yeah absolutely and, and, and you can take anybody you go to whatever that job they have and say well how about if you were making what you were making 20 years ago people were going <laughs> you know with inflation and all 20 years experience and all that stuff i don't think any industry is does that you know i mean i my very first job was at candom yards at oriole park at candom yards wow. selling ice uh, italian ice Iced tea and lemonade. I left that job to work in an Italian pastry shop as a busboy, making three dollars an hour. I would leave that job and go to Home Depot pushing shopping carts for seven dollars an hour, and I was like, "I'm making tw- two and a half, almost two and a half times more money." I thought it was a huge idea, and then I turned to someone else like seven dollars an hour. This is great. They're like, "I make twelve. Seven is garbage." I'm like, "Wait, what? There's people make more than seven dollars an hour? I didn't know that." <laughs> and if I was making $7 an hour now, I would go insane. Like I'm making like the hourly I make at Boston duck tours is what I was making 10 years ago, 12 years ago. 
Yeah. I, the only reason I've taken that job is because it's it's for the tips. Yeah. You know? yep. So I'm I'm going backwards financing my career for the hopes of more financial gain, which is should be the progression of anyone in an industry working at a job. Is like you start out low, and as you go on, your pay should increase because your experience and your 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 worth your value has become more of a, more valuable to the company. Right. Right. And it, and. If you're not good at your job, you're going to be weeded out because there's so much competition. So I, I don't see why, you know, those people should be rewarded, you know? Yeah, especially when I like, I listen to a lot of podcasts about writers. I listen to a lot of writing for someone who does zero writing, but I <laughs> listen to uh, writers talk about how they have to plan what shows they're going to be on so they have an income. Because, you know, you get in a writer's room and you work from, you know, January to April on one show and then they go to, they, they, they go to filming and now you're no longer writing. So now from May to August, you have to pick up another show that's supposed to premiere in the fall or start working in the fall. So then you have to write for that show and then you have to write a wintertime show. And it's like, you have to pick up two or three shows every year in a cycle to try and like continuously have an income. And there's no reassurance that you're going to have that. Right. Right. I think what people don't realize is, it's very difficult to jump from one show to the next. You know, your show ends. Most shows, you know, you don't have an in with the next show to get in, or, or you know, there. It's very hard to. It's very hard to get one job. Never mind multiple jobs. You know. Yeah, especially since like that's if you're a freelancer, that's one thing. You're always hustling for work. But when you're a writer on a show, you're not technically freelance. You're an employee. It's just your yeah. job only lasts for a few months. Now with Conan. Your or, or talk shows, you know, you know, late night shows and talk shows, they go out through the entire year. Their seasons are continual. You know, you get a couple breaks right. here and there. Like, you know, John Oliver takes off for you know three months out of the year, a month in the summer, a month in the winter, and a, um, and a month here. So his writers are constantly working throughout the year for the most part of having small little sabbaticals. But for most writers, on like scripted shows, that's not the scenario that works for them. It's, yeah. it's you work for a couple months. To write a season and then bang, you're out. If you're even yeah. lucky to be writing that, some of it I even hear the horror stories of they hire you just to write an episode and thank you. You we we broke all the story, you write this script and you're out. Yep. Oh, there's a lot of that. Yep, it's yes, absolutely. So well, yeah, I'm hoping it gets refunds off soon, you know. All right. Well, I appreciate you taking your time and going through it. Sorry we couldn't meet face to face between the uh airplane issues and my uh, honestly, if you would have saw me Saturday, it was like this. It was so bad. My voice was so bad. This is literally the improvement, and I got to go start doing tours again tomorrow. It's gonna be a rough week. Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you took the time, and I do hope that the strike ends and that you get back to pitching and that you find the show. Uh, you know, you get to run the show that you've been wanting to do this whole time. Oh, that would be a dream. I'll tell you. Yeah, get that rumor started, but. That's happening. And hopefully I'll be back. I'll be down in LA this winter when everything's back to normal and we can do a flapper show together or get lunch together. Yeah, that would be great. I would love that. Lunch this time won't be, uh, it won't be uh, Wendy's fast food drive through like it was <laughs> in North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Just in the car eating. <laughs> That's right. Just shoveling square burgers in our face. Like we got to get back to the show. They told us it'd be food at the gig, and I showed them, they go, oh, there's no food. It's like, <laughs> there, there was food. It just ran out before you got there. Okay. Right. It's, there was food. I had some of it. <laughs>
All right, Brian. Uh, have fun on your stri- strike tomorrow. Oh, uh, what are you going to write on your uh, your picket sign tomorrow when you go back to the picket line? Oh, you know, it's funny. I, people, do, there are people that bring their own signs. I always just get there and pick up one. I I, I was on the picket line yesterday. Someone's like, "Hey, that's my sign." <laughs> I keep from their sign. So I always have to check. Don't make- steal my Instagram WGA East Instagram <laughs> uh, worthiness. Yes, yes. So I have to be careful of what what signs up. <laughs> awesome alright well this was great talking to you I'm glad we, we got to call it up on your full backstory thanks it was, it was a lot of fun I, I'm sorry I have so much free time hopefully next time I'll be busy on the show <laughs>